So Daniel and I, this is Ellis, by the way, I've been making this podcast off and on for like two years now. And one thing will come up every single time we sit down to record anything. Yeah, noise, sound. It's more or less impossible for us to find anywhere where we can record in silence. Most of the episodes we've made, we've done so in empty classrooms after hours on CMU's campus. And when we go looking for complete silence in one of these classrooms, which we have to be lucky to even find, we don't find silence. There are computer fans that are blowing. Lights will be buzzing. Radiators will be clanking. Uh, One of our mics has its own electronic noise, but that's just an issue of us not having good gear. Yeah, and by the way, we should mention, just to illustrate, we've upgraded from classrooms to recording in Ellis's bedroom, covered in blankets. And we just, we look ridiculous right now. So that's where the question for this episode comes from. We were thinking, you know, 50, 80, 100 years ago, all of these sounds that are plaguing our efforts at, you know, recording in this pristine sound environment, they wouldn't be there. Yeah, and so that made us wonder, is the world louder now than it used to be? Because we want to know if, you know, we were born 150 years ago, could we make a better podcast? (laughs) So we called up George Prochnik. He's the author of the book, In Pursuit of Silence. Here's our conversation with George about all things noise, silence, and whether or not the world is louder today than it used to be. The only place I think I can say where I've ever felt like I was in total silence was in uh, Mammoth Caves. I don't know if you're familiar, George. Sure. We were down there with a group of six people or something, and the guide was like, okay, let's all shut our lights off and just sit here. And like, I think that was the first time I could really kind of hear my heart beat. How old were you, if I can ask, when you Uh, you had that experience? This was recent, just a few years ago. And yeah, it was was like by far the most silent thing that I'd ever at least been cognizant of. I would certainly argue that... um, Something like your experience would have been much more common for many more people before the age that you encountered it in the past. One of the sort of larger findings of the research that that I tried to do in writing this book convinced me that it can be difficult to make the argument that things are noisier in the sense that everywhere there are higher volumes today than there were in the past, at the same time that there's not necessarily more noise everywhere, there's less silence. So it's almost like today the noise is just more smeared over the landscape, whereas it's, before... It's, it's more constant. Yeah, I think, so I think, you know, maybe not more noise, but less silence is the way I came to think of it. Interesting. What do you personally find so valuable in silence? For me, one incontestable benefit of silence is an ability to gather my thoughts, to reflect, to focus. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer of, of all sorts of different things. And writing in an environment that's loud, I just find my, my thoughts diffract. And if I'm in a quieter space, I can get to something more interesting in whatever it is I'm trying to focus my attention on. So the quickest answer to that would be, I, I, I take from silence the ability to pay attention to the world and, and to pay attention to, in fact, to something beyond my own discomfort, uh, beyond myself. Ironically, you were saying that, you know, in silent places is where you can think best. And that probably goes for most of us. Does that touch on why you wrote this book? You know, I've lived in New York off and on really for my whole adult life. And I I felt over time that 
there were even in the span of time I've been in the city, fewer places of refuge, um, less possibilities for finding the quiet that, that made me able to imagine, made me able to really um, open myself to, to the environment. And I worried also, though, that there's a natural tendency to become more sensitive to sound with age, at least stereotypically there is. I wanted to see whether there really had been a change in the soundscape that I could pin down or whether I was just becoming uh, grouchier over time. It's almost kind of weird walking in somewhere where there's like a lot of people, but it's very quiet. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And I don't know if it's always been this way, if if it really is like just a, I'm now addicted to this level of sound. I have this new baseline. Do you think there were these uncomfortable silences, you know, say a hundred years ago? I mean, look, I, th- I think there were always uncomfortable silences, but I think also that it was possible to have a more sociable level of of sound and conversation that that wasn't scary what i think has happened is the sort of sonic ecosystem has gone way out of balance and in the same way that you might speak of a problem in our our typical diet of having too much high sugar high fat high salt food um, i think that we now have a sonic diet that is far too saturated in large overwhelming sounds that make us unaware of the richness, in fact, of the, of, the, of the sonic tapestry in which we live. That's really well put. And yeah, it totally strikes a chord with me when I'm thinking about where I like to go eat dinner and, you know, talk to people and hear nice, like, clanging forks as opposed to some really heavy music that drowns it all out. You know, I w- I'd like to just, if I could, say one thing on that point. There's been at least one quite rigorous study that found that lab music does accelerate um, people's drinking. So if you take how much of uh, restaurant money, let alone a bar money, where it's, where it's all that you're going to have is, is revolving around the, the alcohol sales, there may be a really strict relationship between sound levels and, and, and uh, the aspiration to, to make more money. Um, I, don't think, I don't think that that's at all accidental. Yeah, this is, that's really interesting. So, I mean, you're talking about how music and different sounds can cause us to eat more, talk more, whatever, just induce activity. But, uh, you know, a question that I really want to get into is how is this affecting our health? And I guess to, to start off, can you just explain why chronic noise leads to stress in the first place? Mammalian hearing really de- developed as an early warning system. Um, it was important for our uh, ancestors to be able to hear as much as possible because hearing enabled them to become aware of threats that were at that point invisible and were probably threats that they had to respond to if they weren't going to get eaten. For the same reason, however, that we needed to or or our ancestors needed to hear every sound in our environment, we also respond to sounds, loud sounds in particular, as potential threats. So when, for example, um, a siren goes by, although we might be completely psychologically indifferent to that, our bodies don't ever learn that that siren isn't coming for us. We respond with all sorts of stress hormones, etc., to even sounds that we don't pay any attention to at all if they, are, uh, if, if they fall into the category of, of potential threats. Interesting. So what does this mean? What this means, for example, is that people's ability to get used to a noisy environment in their minds has nothing to do with what's going on in their, in, in their, in their bodies. Some of the most rigorous and disturbing studies that I saw 
were studies done around airports. Scientists were looking at the effects of air traffic noise on people who thought they slept through the night. And in fact, they found that with every plane passage, there was vasoconstriction, elevated heart, heartbeat, blood pressure went up, there was release of stress hormones, etc. And all of these negative, negative um, cardiovascular events continued for up to six hours after these people left the environment, their home environments, even if their workspace was relatively quiet. Because again, we are responding to every sound as though it's something we better pay attention to because it might indicate a predator. We are definitely experiencing all sorts of, of measurable heart and full body stress uh, in, in consequence of this. It's so fascinating. You can't do more to control for you know, how we've psychologically inured ourselves to the noise of kind of the modern world by studying people who are asleep. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it is really frightening. And, and, and I mean, there were so many people who uh, I spoke to over the course of research who, who saw issues of noise as something, you know, basically as something get over it. In, in a sense, you can say that the ability to psychologically block, block out noise has its own dangers because um, it allows many more people to not try and do something to change their environment so that they're more physiologically protected. Most people are familiar with the unit of a decibel. Is it just the volume that noise can induce stress and uh, affect our body in a physical way? Or is there another consideration about you know the types of noise? It's certainly not the case that it's strictly a matter of volume. For one thing, antipogenic noise, uh, man-made manufacturing noise, it, it simply has a different effect on people than natural noise. To give one very specific example, um, there was a park that in, in, I believe it was in Stockholm, it was a small city park that was surrounded on three sides by traffic that the park designers couldn't really do much to, to mitigate the traffic noises. And instead what they did was they actually added uh, a water feature to the park, as well as did some plantings that encouraged different sorts of birds to come who they knew had particular kinds of bird song, etc. And what they found is that even when the actual decibel count in the park had gone up by several decibels, the people, without exception in the park, reported finding it quieter once they'd made these changes. So that the natural sounds in some way diminished the, the impact of the anthropogenic noise of traffic. After writing this book, whenever you're paying attention to policies in cities or buildings or even research about this kind of thing, like what kind of measures could be done to improve this plague of noise that we have? The very unfortunate thing that has happened is that silence is becoming increasingly commodified. Uh, the more that people in underprivileged neighborhoods and underprivileged apartment blocks, etc., are simply allowed to exist in, in sonic dumping grounds, whereas at least the people who are relatively affluent can, can often, to some degree, barricade themselves against this, we're seeing another kind of divide opening up. And I think it's a profound responsibility um, on the part of those of us who have some consciousness of the degree to which our acoustic ecology right now is out of whack to try to make silence more democratically accessible. And I'm convinced that it can be done. Thank <laughs> you.
I contacted Guinness on email. Guinness came back to us and said they wanted to award the record. They wanted to simply call us the quietest place on earth. It's made up of a chamber within a chamber within a chamber. Most anechoic chambers are probably in the 20 to 30 decibel area. In ours, um, the current record under Guinness is minus 13. Minus 13? Yes. What, what does that mean? That, that's like negative sound. Yeah, zero decibels is understood to be the reference for the threshold of perfect hearing. When zero decibels was established as a reference value, um, you couldn't measure it. So the measurement of zero decibels came along after its establishment. Sit in the room and you you are still. Your ears adapt to become more sensitive. And after half an hour or something like that, you begin to hear your heartbeat. Uh, you might hear the flowing of your lungs. Um, we've had many of the people who visited report that they can hear the sound of their joints in their arms or legs moving. We work with Carly Davidson to produce quieter motorcycles that sounded more powerful. Uh, we work with Black and Decker to help them understand what metaphors people expected in a sound to make a tool sound powerful and expensive. The quietest place in the world, which is owned and operated by Orfield Labs, is located not in a cave, not in the deep ocean, but right in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it's run by Stephen Orfield, who you just heard from. You're listening to I Wonder. Stay tuned. Do it again. You're like pulling tape. Is it pulling anything? Someone opening their trapper keeper? Velcro? Still sounds like Velcro. It sounded like you're undoing something, like a. Uh. It's breaking spaghetti. Breaking spaghetti? Huh. Oh, I would never have gotten that. <laughs> I would never have. Oh, I mean, come on. This is, uh, the little firework flare things. <laughs> you know, sparklers. They're sparklers. That is absolutely not correct. Oh, come on. Are they frying an egg or static while tuning in a radio or television? <laughs> I feel like I'm overthinking it. I'm trying to think beyond the... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to think what else it could be. Not a sparkler. I don't know. Sounds like rain on a tarp. Yeah, rain on an umbrella. Really? Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a rain on an umbrella. Sounded like you dropped something in a bucket. I know the sound too, I just forgot. Oh, dropping like a coin into like a piggy bank or a tin can. I have no idea. Dropping yeah. a pin in a can. Mm. Oh, wait, no, no, that's a pinball machine. Is it a ping pong ball? Damn it, what is this? Yeah, it's dropping a plastic solo cup. Oh, duh. Ellis, what was your favorite of those sounds? Um, I think rain on the tarp. Just because it reminded me of camping when it's raining, which I actually really like to do. Assuming that I've set up the tent well and everything. Okay. You might be the only person I know who enjoys camping in the rain. But 
Let's take that example, rain splashing onto a tarp. Imagine that you are a different person, and each time you hear this noise, no matter the situation, you become extremely angry or anxious or depressed. I don't even think I'm following what you're saying. Like, why would, why would that happen? Each time you hear those drips, the echoing of all those tiny little exploding droplets reverberating on the canvas, you seriously can't handle it. Hmm. You go a little bit crazy. Hmm. Um, life would be way different, I guess, for <laughs> sure. In college, I think it was a lot worse for me because I was really stressed out. I think it was my senior year, I had a class in the evening that lasted about three hours. And there was one girl, I feel bad saying this, but she would chew her gum really loudly with her mouth open and just snap and snap constantly. And it almost drove me to the point of insanity. And I remember that because I almost had a meltdown during that class. Hate to admit that. I think I had to leave for a few minutes just to take a breather, to go back in, collect myself, and then finish the rest of the class. That one pretty much stands out in my mind. But I do have some reaction, at least on a very minimal level, every day. And it wasn't until a couple years ago that I realized that this was something common that other people experienced. Misophonia basically is a neurological condition. Those who are affected by misophonia are very hypersensitive to certain sounds, and those trigger sounds differ between each person. Chewing-related noises, gum chewing and snapping is probably the worst for me. Crunching, crinkling of plastic wrappers, especially in movie theaters, uh, the clanking of silverware against plates. Um, sometimes it's even repetitive motions. If there's a motion associated with a sound, like swishing, if someone's jiggling their leg up and down nervously. Listening to someone chewing gum for 15 minutes is comparable to hearing nails on a chalkboard for an hour. But basically the reactions that they have are essentially the same. A lot of people with misophonia become very agitated, frustrated, even panicky, uh, sometimes even enraged when hearing these sounds that are otherwise ordinary. I spoke with a physician, and I think this is a common theory shared by people who are researching this. They believe that misophonia is caused by a miswiring in the brain and basically it would be an abnormally strong connection between the auditory and limbic systems in the brain. So that would be the part of the brain that registers sound and the part that produces emotion. That was Emily Petsko. She reports at the Washington Observer Reporter in Washington, PA. She's written about her condition of misophonia before. Now, all of those sounds that we had people guess, including rain on a tarp, those sounds were retrieved from a sound library created by Dr. Lori Heller, who leads the Auditory Perception Lab at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, they, they gathered all those sounds for research purposes. Her lab tries to answer questions like, do people associate sounds with events like the dropping of a cup or with objects like the cup itself? Yeah, and throughout the making of this episode, the question just kept popping up of what is sound? Like, how is it that our ears are able to detect something that's happening across the room or a football field or, in the case of thunder, miles away? 
So we asked her. Could you maybe enlighten young Daniel and Ellis's brains? Like why that produces a sound? Sure. It happens because when your fingers touch the desk, the desk vibrates in response. And the molecules in the air right next to the desk, when the desk moves up, they get squished together. Um, and a second later, the desk moves the opposite way, and the air molecules actually get pulled apart. What happens is that little compression and expansion gets communicated to the neighboring molecules in the air over and over again until it actually reaches your ear. So uh, when I'm knocking on the desk, I'm just causing like a domino effect of a bunch of air molecules bumping into each other. And what my ear is actually responding to is air molecules hitting it. Yes. And the domino is a very perfect analogy, actually. You're just getting hit by the nearest domino. And so like the speed at which that domino effect happens is just like the speed of sound? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Hey, dude, I got another question for you. All right. Um, if a tree in a forest falls and no one's around, does it make a sound? <laughs> All right, so for real... <laughs> All right, so for real, um, thank you to all of our guests. <laughs> Dude, it's getting weird under this blanket. I think we're done. Yeah. Um, we just want to say thanks to all of our guests. You've been great. You are listening to I Wonder. Take care, y'all. Works. <laughs>